This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom, it's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. We always hit the music before we walk down the aisle. It's episode 380 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. No time to waste for this week's show. So many amazing guests to talk about. Going to have members of the cast of Heels from Stars, the brand new series that is just incredible. Also going to talk to the... Executive producers and showrunners of brand new Cherry Flavor, the horror series from Netflix. Also going to have a couple of guests from Aquafina is Nora from Queens from Comedy Central, too. And this show is going to be filled with the best reviews of the week, both spoiler filled and spoiler free. We're talking about Titans, Stargirl, Batman, the Long Halloween, you name it. It is on the show this week. Let's start things off with the executive producer and showrunner of Heels from Stars. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Deleet Zeus from Gotham, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Get ready to walk that aisle because Heels premieres on Stars on Sunday, August the 18th. Wrestling drama starring Steve Nimmel and Alexander Ludwig. It's a fantastic Series and I was lucky enough to get to sit down with some of the members of the amazing cast and the showrunner and producers of the series to talk about what you can expect. As a matter of fact, how about I start things off with executive producer and series creator Michael Waldron and showrunner Michael Malley and hear what they had to say. Guys, thank you both for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Heels is definitely a great family story, but there's also a lot of drama surrounding the territory wars of regional wrestling promotions. And if you're not a deep cut wrestling fan, you probably don't know about those battles. So was that also a really exciting part of the story that you wanted to tap into and how it, how many people it actually affects? Yeah, I mean, the the rich mythology of of the history of wrestling, it, it, uh, like we're, we're fortunate that we get to pull from, from all of that. I'm a lifelong fan, you know, and so I've been consuming this stuff forever and and so it's an interesting thing when you're telling a story like this and that you want to strike a balance of how do you reward all of the passionate wrestling fans who who are going to tune into this and and see the very authentic specific things that they know and 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 be excited by that at the same time how do you invite in 
a sizable portion of the audience who maybe has never watched wrestling. And how does this show become sort of a gateway into how they can fall in love with it? I, I think that what I was always, you know, my, my lighthouse for the show was that wrestling is ultimately a creative endeavor. And, and these guys are guys and girls are storytellers above all else. And it, it, it's, it's art and it's easy to think of it as something perhaps lowbrow or, 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 or maybe, you know, just, just not artistic, but God, it is, it's, you know, there's improvisational aspects there. There's, there's live performance. It's also all of the athletic feats that these people are pulling off. And, and so just tried to celebrate that in a ways that whether you're a wrestling fan or not, you'll watch it and you'll be thrilled and you'll say, wow, it's fun watching people be this good at something. Yes. And I think that one of the things that is interesting now about any kind of entertainment, any kind of theater company, radio station, uh, podcast, uh, certainly there's a scene in the second episode where Charlie Gully, the rival promoter, is upset because Jack has trashed him on a podcast. Now, I don't know how many people listen to the podcast. To Charlie Gully, it could have been, you know, I don't know, a thousand. But he takes it so personally and he says he's messing with my business. And I think anybody feels that way. If if somebody is in, in a small town and they have an Italian restaurant, and then somebody else opens an Italian restaurant. And obviously you're going to have an opinion about it. But if you go in the newspaper and say they make the worst chicken parm, they make the worst pasta, you know, and, and, and somebody saying that people be like, what, what the hell? You know, like, why are you messing with my business? And, you know, I think that there is a feeling that there isn't enough there, there aren't enough fans to go around in this particular, there are, that's what the, in the story that both of these promotions are getting bigger and better. And that rivalry is like helping them make more content and better content. And actually the fans get into it. And that's something we hope to explore in season two. But I think that aspect of it, the idea that somebody criticizing you in public, even if the amount of people that hears it is negligible to the greater wider public what does that what does that mean what does that what does that do to somebody that's what i kind of like about it and it motivates people to get back at those people <laughs> and also it motivates them to be better there's so many iconic arenas throughout wrestling history and did you all kind of want to make the dome itself feel like its own character too because there's a part in one of the episodes i can't remember if it's two or three that kind of shows just how important everybody feels like the dome is yes yes <laughs> i no, mean just, michael talk about this because i mean i mean just the and and maybe this just comes from growing up in atlanta but i just remember talking about the georgia dome like like my parents talking about the we're gonna go down to the dome to see the falcons play it was always there's just something about the dome was so was so cool it, it instantly sounds mythic and so Mike and Pete and our amazing production designers and, and, and the, the whole team, they, they did such a great job of, of turning the dome into a cathedral, really, because, because that's the whole thing is that Jack takes small town indie wrestling as seriously as anybody could take. He believes that he is an auteur telling, you know, as good of a story as you could possibly tell in a wrestling ring. And so, you know, I, I, I think that we, we had to build a theater around him, the befitting of that aspiration and, and the team did such a great job of that. Yeah, Jeffrey Preck Gordon did a great job. I think that, you know, the idea was, and I believe uh, you, you should ask Sydney this, Joanna or Ryan, that episodes five, six, and seven, we just released to you guys. Um, today or yesterday and then episode eight is going to be done um wednesday so i actually think before the show premieres that you can watch all of them but one of the things that uh, a spade says to charlie gully later on is just like our you know our our dome looks better on tv they're just starting to come up and realize that you know making this place look you know can this be our Fillmore East, our bottom line, our, you know, our, you know, Cavern Club? I think that the Jack, because of his sense of nostalgia and also his his ability to 
turn this place into something just like Michael's saying in his in his mind what the Duffy Dome meant. I'm a Red Sox fan. Fenway Park. I mean, sometimes you go to Fenway Park, there's like this place a dump compared to, you know, some of these other places. I would never say Fenway Park is the dump, but some people go and they're like, Fenway Park, I want to go. And then they, you know, urinating in a trough next to 25 different people. Like, this is a little bit too much. Let's change this up. They finally got rid of those a little while ago. But I mean, I think that that's what Jack, it is a place where because they're so tightly on top of one another, the energy of the crowd, I think it's a different experience. And that's what they're going to be selling more and more. Um, or at least trying to as the show goes forward. As somebody who's been to Fenway several times, I get the, I get the comparison. So thanks for that. Yeah, right. This series is far from being all about the guys. You've also got Allison Luff, who plays Stacy Spade on the show. That is Jack's wife. Always interesting being a wrestling wife. And Kelly Berglund as well, who plays Crystal Ace's valet, but maybe a little bit more than that. Let's hear what they had to say about the show. All right, for both of you, again, thank you so much for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Uh, Kelly, Crystal is definitely one of the standouts for me, especially in the first few episodes. And talk about how, when you're reading the scripts, how she kind of tackles everything that she has head on. And she's dealing with a lot early on in the, in the series. She is. Crystal, from episode one, I, I've i heard so many times now, people are like, man, Crystal just can't catch a break I'm like I know she can't <laughs> I've I've read all the episodes it, it makes you root for her pretty instantly I think she's this really like calm cool and collected girl that has a lot to prove and a lot to show and these are her circumstances right now she is Ace's valet but we learned that she grew up loving wrestling she came to the dome and clearly saw herself in this world so just being a part of it I think is really exciting for her but she she knows her stuff and I like that even Jack starts to acknowledge it as the show goes on she's not just this this girl that's Ace's arm candy that's there to make him look good. She knows what she's talking about and might make a name for herself, especially just as a woman in this world. It's it's pretty exciting to watch that journey for her. Allison, for you, being a wrestling wife already isn't easy as it is, but then you're also a wrestling promoter's wife as well. So I, I feel like, you know, Stacy's patience and understanding is at like max level right now, but how difficult is this on her really? What is the most difficult is as as someone who is married, and it, I, I like to think of as Stacy as the queen of accountability, you know, and I think that that's an important attribute in any partner. And as someone who is married, it's important that you wanna see your partner thrive, because if your partner is thriving, then your unit, your family unit, your marriage is thriving. When you see your your partner confident and happy in what they do, then then you, you thrive as a unit. And so I think Stacy has, sure, she's got a lot of patience for Jack, but I think she also just try, is trying to get him to question whether this is really his dream and what truly makes him happy, or is, is this the dream that he's living for his, you know, late father? For, is, is it his father's legacy that he's trying to live through, or is it truly his dream? That was just a little taste of some of the roundtable discussions I was a part of with the cast and executive producer and showrunner of Heels from Stars. Make sure you're watching that premiere this Sunday at 9 o'clock Eastern Time on Stars. It really is a good just hometown show that if you're a wrestling fan, you'll love it. If you're just a like a, if you're, you're a family drama fan, like a small town family drama fan, you are just going to love this show. So make sure you're watching that. I'll have more from my interviews with the cast of Heels next week on episode 391 of the podcast. Going to be talking to some other members, Mary McCormick, Chris Bauer's going to join me, and a couple of others as well. So yeah, you're definitely going to want to come back for that. But thanks to Michael Waldron, Michael Malley, Allison Luff, and Kelly Berglund for joining me this week. Up next, going to head to Netflix and talk about brand new Cherry Flavor. Executive producers and showrunners Nick Antosca and Lenore Zion join me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is writer Mark Miller and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
Time to head back to the 90s and get our shot at the big time. The mind-bending series, brand new cherry flavor, limited series hitting Netflix today, Friday the 13th, and I got to sit down with executive producers and showrunners, writers, Nick Antosca and Lenore Zion, and they had a lot of interesting things to say about the series. Check it out. All right, so right away as I'm watching this, I, I feel like it couldn't come out on a better day than Friday the 13th. I mean, sure, it's horror, but it really feels like so much more than that, too. How would you describe the series as a whole for anybody that's going in fresh? Well, it's a, you know, it's a nice comedy about a director trying to make her movie in L.A. I mean, you know, we consider it very comedic. But in in all seriousness, it's, you know, it's a a genre hybrid. It's horror, it's surreal, and it's, uh, it's a revenge thriller with with a a, a, sp- a very particular tone with the casual acceptance of the bizarre all around you and vomit kittens yes yeah. <laughs> I, I will say that there was more than a few times that i said to myself even very early on like what the hell did i just see this is crazy how did you come up with that idea for the kittens well we I love kittens. Lenore. it's lenore that was all lenore's idea I, who knows who came up with <laughs> we just love oh, kittens. You're, you're the mother of kittens <laughs> no they it was uh you know we were just talking about the book and you know how to adapt it into the show and that idea seemed to speak to a lot of the the themes and ideas that we were talking about you know lisa is she's a, a creator and she has a bunch of stuff inside of her that she's trying to get out and put out into the world. And one way or another, it's going to come out. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the book itself, it's, it's wildly unpredictable. And that's something that we wanted to, we were hoping to do, we were hoping to bring to the show. So really anything that we could think of was fair game in in this wild world. And, And that was a really exciting part of the adaptation. Well, you certainly captured that. So bravo on that score. <laughs> you definitely did that. Uh, I kind of love that this is set in the early 90s in L.A. What do you what, how do you why do you feel like that's kind of the perfect setting for this story that you've got? For for one thing, you know, the basic plot, you know, being a, an aspiring filmmaker, you know, she nowadays could just take her her phone and, and make a movie if she really wanted to. So we wanted the the actual challenge and stakes to be there. And, and they were there if we kept it in the 90s. Yeah. And just the, like the vibe and energy of it, like the, the book was written in the 90s, obviously set in the 90s. Todd Grimson watched a ton of horror movies and like cheap thrillers from the late 80s and early 90s. So all that kind of was baked into the feeling of it. And then when we were thinking about like, how it would look and feel. We were watching a lot of those movies and trying to capture some of that energy. And it just wouldn't be the same if, if it was in the present day. There's too many screens, like you don't want social media and all that stuff. Like it just is a different kind of thing. It just felt really early nineties. I felt like it's not having cool. cell phones was like, a game changer too. Oh yeah. I, 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 I think all horror movies, you know, unless they are literally about phones, should be are, are better if they're in like, you know, 2002 or earlier. I totally agree with that. And I got to say, I think that Rosa Salazar has been pretty much perfect in almost anything that she's been in. So talk about what she brings to that role of Lisa Nova. Everything. She brought everything. I, her her range is unbelievably wide. She's she's capable of being a really, really strong character while also being vulnerable. She's got great comedic timing. You know, she, she, we really needed somebody who was able to do everything and, and that's her. She is a perfect Lisa Nova. Yeah. And then, and then the, the character is, you know, that was really the driving force for us originally, like why to make this show, the character in the world. And we needed like that perfect actress who could bring that kind of amorality that you still sort of love, right? Like you, you, you identify with her, I think. And at the same time, like, you're like, what are you doing? What? No, like, stop. It's a terrible. And, and Rosa just kind of brings it all. And she's so committed. And yeah, we were, we were lucky because without her, without her and, you know, without Catherine, like it doesn't work. It's funny that you bring that up about, you know, like the whole, what are you doing thing? Because that's one of the things that actually struck me while I was watching this, because I feel like like there's motives here for a lot of characters that are kind of very self-serving. And while there isn't kind of a traditional like hero villain in the story kind of thing, do you feel like viewers are really going to question, you know, like maybe who's in the right here just across the board? Well, maybe, but, but, you know, 
Lou is definitely, he's the bad guy, right? And, oh, no and, doubt. Yeah, no uh, doubt about that. Um, Lisa's, you know, she's the protagonist, even if she does some things that are ultimately not great for her, right? Like they, they have consequences that she didn't expect. But, you know, following that journey of like an artist who desperately wants to get the stuff, the psychic energy, the creative raw material inside them out into the world and get sidetracked by duplicity, by, by manipulative mentorship. That was an interesting story to us. Yeah, I mean, she she had something that, that that is very deeply intimate stolen from her. You know, your creative passion is an intimate product. And to, to experience, it's understandable why she would seek revenge. Really, it is. But there's an aspect to the story that questions whether or not seeking revenge is really the best course of action. It, it's fun to walk that line. It really was. That was one of my favorite parts about watching this thing. I want to talk about Lou for a second, though, because I feel like he's just this particular kind of slime ball. I mean, it's just he makes my skin crawl. So, I mean, you could say he's a villain. Is he more of a villain, a predator, a blend of just a whole bunch of things? How disgusting is this guy? Well, he's he's both. Right. But he's he he's got nothing. He doesn't create stuff. Right. So he he sort of has everything in a worldly sense, but he can't generate anything. So he's got to. He's got to siphon it out of creative people, right? Like, and he's got to offer them mentorship. And in, in the guise of mentorship, he's, yeah, it's an interesting mirror too with what Boro is ultimately doing to Lisa. And, and their relationship is kind of a supernatural mirror for her and Lou's relationship. And so part of the journey is, is about a, a protege who discovers that she's actually the strong one, that, that she has, um, she's got it, you know, within herself and they're taking it from her. Yeah, and, and something about Lou that I, I think is a really important piece of his character and that uh, Eric Lang brought so brilliantly to, to Lou's character is this sadness. You know, there, there's a bit of sadness and, and, and he's a pitiful character really. And so it, it, it's, it's sort of like the slime balls version of vulnerability you have to be able to relate to what he's going through as well. You don't want like a two-dimensional villain. And I, I think that he he created a, a, a full Lou, a, a full human Lou that you could that you could relate to even even when you don't really like what he's doing. Yeah, we love we loved Eric Lang in um, Escape at Danamora and other stuff that we've seen him in. And he is just so good at like bringing humanity to you know people whose actions you could characterize as monstrous fans always like to look for easter eggs and things like that and all kinds of different things so here's here's something i need to know lucy's short film it's it's terrifying in its own right there's a there's a lot going on there how much do fans really need to pay attention as they're watching this to this short film maybe there's some little clues there to other things how much should we be paying attention to this thing really we're not going to give away the Easter eggs. We're, we should be paying attention to everything. Every moment. There, there are some clues buried throughout the season that might help viewers get a bigger picture of what's going on. That's all I'll say. There you go. I think that's pretty good. Really quickly, before I let you go, Boro just terrifies the hell out of me. I, I don't know. You can't quite put a finger on what she's doing. So my question for you is, if you were Lisa, would you trust her? No. No, I, I would uh, I would ask where she shops for her clothes. Um, <laughs> then I would get the hell out of <laughs> the it. The fashion sense is on point. If I were Lisa, I think that I would be weighing the pros and cons of trusting her. And, and I probably would have done exactly what Lisa did. Well, you guys will see exactly what Lisa did on Friday, August 13th. That's right, Friday the 13th. Brand new cherry flavor. The limited series is going to be premiering on Netflix. Nick and Lenore, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm just going to be honest with you right now. Nothing can prepare you for what you're about to see on brand new cherry flavors. So many eye-popping wow moments that are just going to keep you not just on the edge of your seat, but some characters that yeah are definitely going to make your skin crawl as well. And how far will they go? You'll have to see for yourself right now streaming brand new cherry flavor streaming on Netflix. Again, thanks to executive producers and showrunners Nick and Tosca and Lenore Zion for joining me to talk about brand new cherry flavor from Netflix this week. Up next, going to head to Comedy Central. Yeah, going to talk to B.D. Wong and Teresa Shao about Aquafina is Nora from Queens. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is B.D. Wong from Gotham, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Lisa, BD, Hi, how you doing? Thanks so much for joining me today. Appreciate it. Hey, James. So really excited for season two of Aquafina is Nora from Queens. Such a fun show. So many wonderful characters. Now, Teresa, for you, when you all kind of got together to start planning season two were there any specific aspects of the story that you kind of wanted to expand on yeah I mean I think we really just wanted to keep the fun and irreverence of season one but then get deeper into the you know our characters emotions the emotional side of things and I think you know we we, we leveled up I, th- I think with with season two we're really excited about it and BD for you you've played a lot of very interesting and eccentric characters in your career over the years. I mean, I think that Wally's definitely interesting, but would you describe his, him as in that same way? Or do you think he's kind of just an everyday guy? Cause I think he's way more than just an everyday guy. I think both actually. I think that yeah, I definitely see why he's an everyday guy. And I like that because for me, everyday guys are not, you know, that's not my normal kind of thing. I don't have a lot of parts like that. So I definitely feel that, but then I also feel that he has an opportunity it being a comedy and the comedy often being as broad as it needs to be to to be not eccentric necessarily but to actually play broader comedy and the the range is pretty wide actually um we were able to kind of get really intimate in the show this season and Teresa I think it was a bit of a risk or a bit of a kind of uh an experiment that I think works really quite beautifully because the 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 broader comedy or the wackier comedy is still quite present i think it's even better is is what i would say than season one because of that yeah we definitely kind of adjust things so that we're able to do the wacky things but then also have those episodes that have a little bit more heart too yeah we're not throwing up the baby with the bathwater kind of thing right we did throw a baby you're just adding a little bit more tepid water. That's all you're doing. And, that's, yes. and that's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> yeah. So that I know that you both get to work with Aquafina a lot, whether it be on the screen or behind the scenes. Can you all kind of talk about the energy that she brings to this series as a whole? I would say just from, I'll jump in because Teresa knows her way better than I do, but I'm getting to know her in, in a very nice way working with her as I do. And I would say honesty and just kind of cutting right to it are really her such great, qualities for a person running a show and creating a show and being the center of a show to have. And I've always, I've really grown to respect and, and love that about her. She's really very clear about what is right and what isn't right for her in the show and articulates it in a very nice, but clear way. And that's so such a kind of a rare thing in our business that, that somebody can be so clear. And I think our best work gets done because of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the greatest thing about her, obviously, is that she sort of sets the tone for the show. She's incredibly kind, incredibly professional. You know, she has this kind of persona that's just, oh, a stoner. Uh, she's crazy. She's all over the place. But at the same time, like she's really, she's really, really smart. She's really, really funny and very professional on set, like Edie said, and kind of sets the tone for, you know, she knows everyone on the crew. You know, we're, it's a really, really fun environment. And, and it's, always a pleasure to to kind of work with someone like that. Absolutely. BD, for you, one of my favorite episodes of last season was when Wally took Brenda to the dinner theater. I don't think I can forget that episode because it was so hilarious. Tease for us a little bit, though. Could we actually be seeing a little bit more with Brenda and Wally this season? Maybe things get a little more serious? I don't know. I think it's okay to say that. It, yes, it does. And how it does and what happens, I won't say. But I will say that it has been really, really my first on-screen girlfriend or boyfriend, actually. And in a, in a way that is really 
kind of surprising, but I really am enjoying having that experience because it is through a kind of a personal relationship, like a loving relationship that you can have intimacy and, and communication and, all, and good things that make things really three-dimensional. Yeah, they get, I think the main thing to say is that they get a little bit closer and that as a result, it affects Wally's relationship with Nora. As all of the characters in the show in season two are changed or changing, that affects their relationship to Nora. And that's kind of what spin, the second season spins on. Absolutely. Now, I don't know how you can watch this show and not love Lori Tan Chin. And I think that that is especially true for the first episode of season two when you guys get a chance to see it. So, Teresa, how much fun is it to write a character like that? And for B BD, for you, talk about the dynamic between her and Wally a little bit, especially with him getting back out there on the dating scene, because that's going to be fun. Yeah, no, uh, Lori is a joy. I mean, she's she is what, you know, when you when you meet her and you, you, you hang out with her, she really does embody that grandma attitude of, you know, when, when Nora was sick last season, she actually made her a soup. Um, and this was even before we filmed that episode. Of course uh, and so, yeah, it was really, it was really sweet. And so, you know, she's, she's sweet, but she also has this like edge to her because, you know, she's an OG and she's been through it and it's really nice. And we're so happy that she's kind of been able to let go and be able to do her own thing on the show. And we kind of just let, let her free. So it really is like a playground for her. And, you know, she brings her own props and she feeds everybody. And she's, she really relates to that maternal energy that is so important for her to have in her relationship with Nora because it's real. And I've known her a long time. She was in my first show that I was ever in. So we, we came up together and she really looked out for me then even when we were um, much younger. And it's so nice to see somebody kind of finally finding a place. She's done a lot of great work over, over the years, no question. But this is a particular situation in which she's being given almost a kind of free reign. And it's, it really shows. This is why people love her enough because she's authentic to who she is as a performer. BD, speaking of which, you actually got to go behind the camera, direct an episode this season, this season, season two premiere, if I'm not mistaken. So what was it like getting a chance to do that? It's actually see, episode 10. I, episode I know 10. why. You, oh, okay. Seven, okay. Seven. There, was a, there was a press release and the wording of it was, they bundled, whatever. It's, it's, That's it's, why it's, I got it. Okay, there we yeah, go. Yeah, it wasn't, it, I was, I'm debuting in season two and I directed season 10, I mean, uh, episode 10. Seven, seven. Seven, sorry. There are 10 and I was seven. Seven out of ten. Hopefully yes. we get to season ten. I mean, well, yeah. why not, right? <laughs> uh, but it was great. It was really I was I'm very grateful to Teresa and 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 Aquafina for asking me to do it. And um I was pleased as punch to take it on and enjoy the uh, you know, I think if I was going to direct an episodic an episode of a television show, which I've kind of resisted over the years, the concept of it. I, I was, if I was going to do it with people I really liked collaborating with, and if I was allowed to collaborate, which they allowed me to do unbelievably, really in really a very nice way that made me feel really included. That is the way that one should be able to do it. And I really was grateful that this was the way that I was able to do it because it really made it fun for me. And then I'm acting in the show at the same time. So I'm ex ex exploring and uh, discovering things about the character as we're doing it. So it was kind of wild. Such a special episode. It's probably, probably my favorite one of the, of the season. So yeah, that's nice. It's, it's, it is, it has a special identity and a special emotional kind of resonance. Interesting. Interesting. So Teresa, as you go into a second season of a show like this, obviously you've, you've probably, like he said, you've known Aquafina for a while. But when you get to work with a cast for a full season, you come back for a second season, do you get kind of a sense as you're writing, you go, okay, I know this would work well for this person. And maybe you know that a little bit better going out in the second season. So that allows you to stretch things out a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the lucky thing is working with this amazing cast. We know exactly what they can do and really leaning into that. I think partly just getting into deeper into the characters and having, you know, talking more to Nora and kind of figuring out like, what do we want to say? What are the themes we want to say? That was, those were all things that, you know, obviously season one, we're sort of establishing everyone trying to figure out the show, learning on the job. And season two, it really feels like, again, that we kind of leveled up every, in every element across the board. Really quickly, favorite episode from season two, you can't wait for fans to see. I already said mine. That's that's BD's episode. Yeah, and I'm partial to 207 too because I directed it, but I also really love 204. I worked with a really dear friend, Cindy Chung, in that episode, and I really, really, I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing that episode. They're all like, you know, little children. It's hard to say which one is your favorite. It is hard, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
No doubt about that. But it's all good, and you're going to see that August the 18th. That's when Aquafina is North from Queens premieres on yeah. Comedy Central. Catch up season one, by the way, on HBO Max, yeah. too, by the way. Teresa, VD, thank you so much for the time today. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you so much, James. And it's one of those shows that maybe has flown under the radar for you, maybe you missed. There's some little twisty elements for it. If you think this isn't a nerdy show, you haven't watched it yet. You need to see it for yourself. Aquafina is Nora from Queens on Comedy Central, premiering on August the 18th. Make sure you're not missing that premiere. Again, thanks to BD Wong and Teresa Xiao for joining me this week. Up next, time to dive into the reviews. Marvel's What If? We'll start with that and some spoilers next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, listeners, this is Peter Shinkoda from Daredevil. I play Nobu, and you are listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. What a perfect way for Marvel Studios to introduce animation into the mix. It's Marvel's What If, which is now streaming on Disney+. Plus. Not only am I going to give you some spoiler-filled review thoughts on this first episode, I'm also going to talk about a press conference that I attended for What If. And one of the things that really said a lot to me was when director Brian Andrews was talking during the press conference, he, and he actually said, when talking about the series, he said, things are so different, so weird, so crazy, it just opens the floodgates. We could do whatever we wanted to, and that was quite exhilarating, you know, to be able to play in that way. And you actually saw that in full display in this first episode of Marvel's What If, which is Captain Carter. And no, I'm not going to get into the whole, you know, Twitter name-changing controversy thing. You know, whether you loved it, you hated it, you thought it was disrespectful, it ended up being brilliant marketing on Marvel's part because it worked out very well for getting people to talk about this series. But if you look at the episode on its surface, Captain Carter is a hugely interesting character and the situation for how it goes down, like what happens to Steve Rogers to make Peggy Carter have to become Captain Carter. And I love that it's that split decision on her part too, right? That she has to make a call as to whether or not she is going to be the one that does this. And she absolutely does. And it's a baller move. And it really actually changes Peggy's personality as well. But then when you look at that, you you say, okay, that's the what if. And, you know, we're going to see Captain Carter. So that means Steve is over here. And he's not at all in this episode. Now, he is not, you know, big man on campus, Captain America, Steve Rogers. But you get to see that no man left behind or no person left behind personality from Steve Rogers. You get to see the kind of man that he really is, whether he has the shield or not. And what they put him in, I guess I won't spoil that. Maybe you've seen it already, but I don't want to spoil that. Like what they put him in and the role that they do give him, or that I should say Howard Stark gives him, was very eye-opening, very surprising, and very cool at the same time, too. And then you see what happens to Peggy at the end of this episode and how she sort of goes through the same transformation, for lack of a better way of putting it, as Steve Rogers does as Captain America, just in a very different way. So to me, this was just the tip of the iceberg of a show that really does have these endless possibilities. And these actors that are clearly just very happy to be doing these roles again and doing something different. As a matter of fact, the director, Brian Andrews, was talking about that as well. And he said it was the general genuine happiness for them to be able to riff on the characters a little bit. And they would start getting really into it, I think. And he talked about how it was a spinoff of what they originally did and they could sort of do it differently, and that they were surprised at what exactly was being done differently as well. So it's almost like they are watching the show along with us for the first time and react, reacting to these things too. Because imagine being like like a Chris Evans and you're Captain America for all of this time and, you, and you're playing this certain version of the character and then all of a sudden it's this different Steve Rogers, right? And that's something that's a really, really cool thing to play. And for Haley Atwell... As well for, for for Peggy Carter. Imagine going from Agent Carter to Captain Carter. That's going to be really, really cool as well. And of all the characters, it looks like Captain Carter might be the one that could we could see return. It's sometime a little bit in the future, that was Brad, Brad Winderbaum who kind of dropped that, the executive producer, during the press conference. So don't be surprised if this isn't the last you see of Captain Carter. 
Matter of fact, he also said at the press conference, you never know who might pop up. So then there's that. But the first episode was really enjoyable. The one after that where, where you've got T'Challa as Star-Lord and it's Chadwick Boseman's final Marvel Studios performance. And they talked about the emotions that came with that after the fact and just how enjoyable that episode is from my perspective. Quite frankly, I can't say a whole lot about it because it's not out yet, but just how that episode played off so well and the decisions that were made there. The other thing they talked about during the press conference was how Kevin Feige was actually super excited and adamant that they do Marvel Zombies in this, which I was kind of surprised at too. Like I wasn't surprised to necessarily see that on the roster of episodes, but I was surprised to hear that everybody was so excited about doing it. And then you've got Jeffrey Wright, who plays The Watcher, and he was talking about in the press conference about how the Watcher's just watching these characters, and he said that gives him that, it gives him purpose, that that gives him his life meaning, you know, in some ways, is what he was saying. Kind of saying how the Watcher's almost like the passion behind the the fans of the characters as well, which I thought was a really, really interesting perspective and how much the Watcher will play a role in this going forward other than just being the overseer, who knows. But I got to tell you, Marvel's What If, stunning animation, 100% lived up to my expectations, and I can't wait to see all of the new stories that we're going to see, not just this season, but for the upcoming second season as well. That's going to do it for my spoilery review of What If from Marvel and, of course, on Disney+. Plus. And some notes from the press conference as well. Up next, good. keep the reviews going. Head to DC this time. Talk about the season two premiere of Stargirl. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Angelic Washington from DC Stargirl. And you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's summertime in Blue Valley. And that means my spoiler-filled review of the season two premiere of DC Stargirl on the CW. So yeah, get ready for some serious spoilers. And I will have a spoiler-free tease of the second episode as well. But you pick up after, of course, the Justice Society of America, the brand new Justice Society has defeated the Injustice Society. And it seems like all all would be good in Blue Valley, right? But there's one person who doesn't seem to think so. And that's Stargirl herself, Courtney Whitmore. I gotta say, I was a bit conflicted about how I felt about Courtney. In this episode, and, and, and in a manner of speaking, it's classic Courtney, right? Because she was all about being Stargirl from the get-go, right? With the second she found the staff and heard the story, she was all about it, regardless, right? But now, she's really just letting everything else take a back seat to being Stargirl. And she's just, and it's funny, I think it was Yolanda that put it the best way, just like she was looking for a fight. Right when there really wasn't one at the time, she wasn't really celebrating the victory, celebrating the quiet. And even Pat told her the same thing. He's like, "Look, you know, you need to chill," sort of thing. And it looked, and it turns out, you know, she was neglecting her schoolwork and some other things. But here's the thing that she was she's neglecting that I think is the most glaring, and I think the episode points this out, and that is that all the other members of her team are also dealing with something and that's you know that was true of last season as well and Courtney certainly did her part to help them with that at the time but she's still missing the fact that Yolanda's dealing with the aftermath of what happened with Brainwave how could she not right then you've got Rick Rick's the really interesting story because first of all apparently Rick can pick up some chicken I mean if somebody brought me three buckets of chicken I'd, I'd probably be pretty happy too but clearly you see in the episode, like, he's feeding Grundy, right? He feels bad. And that is off-brand for Rick, right? Like, it's good for Rick. We want Rick to grow in that way. But at the same time, it's like, well, okay, what's going on with him? And how is this affecting him right now? Because you see that it's affecting him as well. You see something that happens in the school with him as well, and something's not right. And then you've also got Beth, who is, you know, it's classic Beth, right? You know, she misses Chuck. And now you find out that her parents aren't exactly on the right footing either. So all of her team members are dealing with different things, but Courtney's stuck on the fact of what if there's another villain out there? Now, granted, we already know, like, from the previews for this season, 
that she's right. There's going to be more villains, okay? So it's not like this isn't justified. But in the moment, she has to choose, right? She has to, she has to find that balance. But then you also go, okay, well, she's still a kid. You know, she's still trying to find her way through life in general. Never mind being a superhero. But she's not the only one either because Mike has the superhero bug as well, which I think is really, really interesting. And all again, not all that surprising either, but he's still kind of being pushed to the side a little bit. And you get that again. Pat doesn't want his kid involved in this life anymore than he really has to be, right? And then, you know, Pat's like, all right, let's go on this vacation and, you know, let's just put it all aside for a little bit. And then that blows up. And then you just see things just sort of, you know, not go so well for Courtney. And really, I thought that that was the thing about this episode is that this team needs to learn how to unwind and they have to learn to let go of the superhero stuff every now and then and just be kids, right? That, that's, the, that's the trick of the whole thing. But then the end of the episode, I think, was one of the most interesting parts because not only did you have what Cindy had going on and those pictures that she was putting on that table of the children and yeah one of them that really really stood out okay that I won't spoil I won't spoil but I will say that boy is that going to be interesting to see if that plays out huh that last picture that she put on the table yeah we'll we'll talk about that here coming up not too long from now but you know also you've got a green lantern that shows up at the end of this episode now how she's going to be affecting this upcoming season and where her story goes, you're going to get a little bit more about what's going on with her in the second episode of season two. You get a little backstory on her, who she is, what she's there for sort of thing, how it affects Courtney. And again, this uh, episode two will be another big episode for Courtney and how she chooses the kind of hero that she wants to be. And maybe again, you get a little bit of a bite of a reality sandwich in a certain respect as well. And I think Courtney's just one of those, you know, one of those teenagers that just needs to be reminded of what's really important from time to time. And I've talked, I've been talking this whole time and haven't even mentioned Sylvester Pemberton, who's just kind of cruising around looking for his old buddy Stripesy. Who knows how that's going to play out? And is that Sylvester Pemberton? That's my question too. It's like, it's, it seems obvious that it is. I mean, it certainly looks like him, all this other stuff. But is there more to it than we know right now? I'm not telling you anything like in advance. I don't, I, I don't know because I haven't seen that far ahead. But I will tell you this. That, that has definitely got my radar up. I'm not quite sure. But we, we'll, we will meet some more interesting characters in the second episode. And if you thought the beginning of this first episode was dark, it starts to get really dark. With Eclipso coming up. This is going to be a really, really serious season of DC Stargirl. And I just feel like nobody's safe. And that's the other thing. That's the thing that bugs me because I love these characters so much. I feel like no one's safe and that's making me uneasy. So definitely a great start for season two of DC Stargirl on the CW every Tuesday night. Yeah, going to be appointment viewing for me for sure. That's going to do it for my spoiler field review of DC Stargirl. Season 2 premiere up next. We'll keep it in the DC realm and talk about Titans, the Season 3 premiere. We'll do that with some spoilers as well next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, I'm Trey Romano from DC's Stargirl, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. They say you can't go home again, and when it's Gotham City, maybe you wouldn't want to go home again, but it's time for my spoiler-ish review of the Season 3 premiere of DC's Titans on HBO Max. I say ish because I don't really want to spoil too much for this first episode because, I mean, it just came out and I don't want to be that guy. But I do have to talk about a couple of spoilers in order to actually talk about this episode. And the first one is going to be right now, and that is that this episode very heavily deals with the death of Jason Todd at the hands of the Joker. That's in the comics. That's no surprise. You kind of know because Red Hood's coming anyway that this is going to happen. So don't at me about that spoiler, okay? That's one thing that should be pretty friggin' obvious from everything that we know about this season so far. But it's also a very nice introduction of Barbara Gordon, Commissioner Gordon, into the fold as well. You learn the fates of a couple of other characters 
two in this episode. One in particular that's very, very big that I will not spoil, but it is a big time. This is one of those things that it's subtle. The fate of this character is very subtle in this episode. But when you pick up on it, you go, wait a minute. Did, did he say what I think he just said? And that's where this is going to go? And yes, that's exactly what he said. And that's exactly how it's going to go. So, and and sorry for that being vague, but if you haven't seen the episode yet, this is something I don't want to spoil for you because I actually had to take a pause for a second to see if I heard it right, and I did. But the aftermath affects so many, not just, you know, Dick Grayson, not just Bruce Wayne, but also the Titans team as well. Starfire has a pretty big opinion on it. As a matter of fact, maybe not necessarily... A popular one. And then, you know, Barbara has her reactions as well to this whole thing. And the dynamic to to me between Barbara and Dick is very, very interesting. It's very kind of there's respect there. And you could tell there's something going on there. But there's also a little bit of animosity in there mixed in as well. And Barbara's feelings towards Bruce are very, very interesting and very, very heated. But you kind of get that sense for this particular Bruce Wayne, right? You picked up on that a little bit last season. And this season, like like Dick is just, he gets really angry at Bruce. And you kind of could almost understand that. It almost brings that realism aspect to the story. I mean, you've seen this in the comics before where they, they're they kind of at odds. And you've seen, you know, them kind of go back and forth a little bit. And you've seen, you know, quite frankly, Bruce can be a little cold. At times, right? There's no denying that. Even if you love Batman, you understand that Bruce Wayne can be a little bit of a cold dude. but And you really see that on display, at least to me anyway, in this first episode of Season 3 of Titans. I think you really, really get that side of Bruce that shines through. And he's not always a likable guy, quite frankly. And, and that's okay, too, by the way. Just going to throw that out there. But here's the deal. They do a really, really good job with how they frame this first episode. There's actually a scene where it's Bruce, Dick, and Barbara in the same room together. And that scene to me was just so intense and stood out so much in this episode that I really, really loved it. You also had a really, really good scene, actually several, if we're being honest, with Tim Drake. You do get introduced to Tim Drake in this episode and just his personality is just so you you, first of all you you love him automatically because of his passion for for the batman brand quite frank for lack of a better way of putting it he's just a batman fan and i really really love that about this character he's a smart kid they don't shy away from that at all he's he's a kid who loves his family you get that on display as well and then, you know, he finds out the news of Jason Todd, just like a lot of other people did. And his reaction to it tells you all you need to know about what's going to be the future for Tim Drake. Now, what is when that's going to happen, when we obviously we expect him to become Robin at some point, when and if that happens in this season, I can't tell you. But I do think that there's a very fine line here that's being towed in this first episode of season three. And the tension is just going to carry on into the next episode for sure. And I I haven't even talked about, you know, what's going on with Starfire. She's got a little bit of a personal thing going on. We've got Beast Boy, who's kind of coming into his own as well. Connor, too. And there's also, you know, the, the, the Titans have still got business to attend to. And that business now is taking them to Gotham City. So another very interesting start to the season for season three of Titans on HBO Max. I can't wait to see the fan reaction to a couple of the things in this. I'm already seeing some of it from the episode just being out for a day. Yeah, this is going to be a really interesting ride. The second episode doesn't disappoint either that much. I can tell you from what I've from what I've seen of it. So, yeah, make sure you're watching Titans every Thursday on HBO Max. Yes. Episodes released weekly. Deal with it. It works. It's great. That's going to do it for my spoiler-ish review of the Titans Season 3 premiere. Up next, we do have time to squeeze in one more. Yeah, another review 
Batman, The Long Halloween, Part 2. We'll talk about that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is voice actor Roger Craig Smith, and you guys are listening, you lucky people, to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And we're back. The holiday has come to a close. It is time for my spoiler-ish review of Batman The Long Halloween Part 2. I will probably, if I look back at Part 1, obviously I'll spoil some of that. I'm not going to spoil everything here in Part 2, even though it's been out for a while now on digital. It just came out on Blu-ray, but I will definitely not spoil who the holiday killer ends up being. I won't spoil that, but I will talk about some stuff that obviously led up to that reveal. Now, this second part really is about a couple of different things. It's about the Falcone family and how that whole dynamic is, and it is about the origin of Two-Face, basically. That's exactly how this really plays out, and it's kind of Harvey's descent into madness more than anything else as far as how he becomes Two-Face, and I got to tell you, it's it's kind of chilling what happens to Harvey Dent, and you see it building over time, starting in the first part and heading into the second part. Now, it all kind of makes sense in the end, I will say that, but at the same time, of all the portrayals you see of Two-Face becoming Two-Face in in any sort of media, which we haven't really gotten a true origin of Two-Face in anything up to this point other than in the Nolan movies, of course. This one is the most chilling, though, for sure, because they played the long game here, pun absolutely intended, And, and it really worked out. For the best, and I gotta say, what Josh Dumel ended up doing with this character, vo- voice-wise, and that portrayal was absolutely amazing. Once that transformation was made, and then you see how quickly Two Face can just sort of get things together and be super ultra dangerous right away. It is just downright scary how good that was. And I also have to say that taking it back to the beginning. Of this movie. How about Poison Ivy? Like she's not a huge part. Of this movie. But at the same time. You see just how dangerous she could be. And how formidable. That she absolutely is. And what she can do. And also it's like a be careful. Who you associate yourself with. Sort of thing. Because what Carmine Falcone ends up doing. Is recruiting all of these. Villains of Gotham. These super villains. And it sort of backfires in his face a lot. So, and and it, that is a point of contention within his family as well. You see Sophia get into, we see a lot of Sophia Falcone, Falcone in this movie too. And I think that the, the, the bond that they kind of, she kind of shares with his daughter and what systematically is happening to his family is really interesting. I don't know that the attempt here is to make, Carmine Falcone is sympathetic figure because I don't know that if you're a Batman fan or if you're just a comics fan in general of DC, you can have any sympathy for Carmine Falcone. And I mean, he is a mob boss at the end of the day. It's hard to really have any sympathy for this guy. They try. I didn't necessarily. Does his family go through a lot? Yeah. Is it is it okay? What's happening to his family? No, it's not. But at the same time, the guy's still Carmine Falcone. And he's so responsible for a lot of suffering. So it's hard to really feel sorry for a guy like that. And there's a couple of callbacks with Bruce and Carmine Falcone's family and what was going on with Bruce's family and the Falcone family that's kind of interesting, that's interwoven into this as well. So I really like the Falcone story in this. That that might have been my favorite part of these two parts. Of this actually. And you know the Maroney family factors in there. As well. But the systematic way that the holiday killer. Chooses their victims. And what you know. Who go, who dies when. Is a really really interesting aspect. Of this too. The only real complaints I have. About this movie. Are I really thought. You, they kept teasing Calendar Man. Being a bigger part. Of this story. And then we don't kind of get that in this at all. I was really hoping we get a little bit more Calendar Man. Maybe you say he drops a little bit of a clue that helps Batman at one point. I don't know that he really does. But I kept waiting for that moment where, the calen- where Calendar Man was going to pop up 
and have this amazing moment, even if it was a short one. That never really happened, so that was kind of a bummer for me. It also kind of dragged on a little bit in the beginning. After the Poison Ivy scenes were over, I thought things sort of dragged out a tad. But other than that, I mean, the ending was fantastic, how that whole thing played out. The final scenes, when we find out who the holiday killer is, I thought the explanation was really good. I kind of had it figured out beforehand. You might too, but that wasn't necessarily a bad thing either because it was still good storytelling at the end of the day when you've got props to Tim Sheridan in that regard. if You might figure out who it is, but it's the why and the how and all those other things once they come together. If you do that properly, then that's okay in my book as far as I'm concerned. So, great storytelling. I love the animation style in this movie as well. I like that there we, we still got a little bit of humor thrown in the mix too. But with, with Alfred, who is the constant sense of humor in this movie, believe it or not, that, that's, where you're getting your, that's where you're getting your laughs from, as far as I'm concerned. And then, I, of course, Bruce and Selena, those were always really good scenes. And Naya Rivera, in, in her final performance, does a great job as Catwoman Selena Kyle. I said it before and I'll say it again. It's a shame that we'll never get to have her in that role again because I thought she did great. And yes, there is an end credit scene where that's going to go. It should be very, very interesting as well. I won't spoil that either for you, but definitely a fitting two-parter Batman The Long Halloween Part 2 now available. There will be a 4K release coming up to the both parts and I'll keep you posted on that as well. Not only is that going to do it for my spoiler-ish review of Batman The Long Halloween Part 2, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Going to change things up a little bit this week because there was just so much stuff to review and so many great interviews. Thank you so much to my amazing guests that were on the show this week. And check out what we've got going out online at downandnerdypodcast.com and on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.